This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you're listening to New Books and Film, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Annie Burke, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Genevieve Yu, Assistant Professor in the Department of Culture and Media at Eugene Lang College at the New School and Director of its Screen Studies Program. Girlhead, Feminism and Materiality is Genevieve's first book, and it came out from Fordham University Press in November of last year. This study builds on feminist media questions of representation and ideology to ask how gender and sex is defined on screen at the most cellular level, the technology and materiality of cinema itself. As she writes, structural elements inevitably also have content. Well, now that the structural element of my intro is over, let's get to the content. Hi, Genevieve. Um, Hi, Annie. Great to see you. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to a career in screen studies? Hi. Um, yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, that's a, a great question. <laughs> um, I um, I got to screen studies. I did not take a direct route, I'll say, from um, my undergraduate education into graduate work. And so there was a hiatus of about, I don't know, five years. I didn't even realize it was a hiatus. I did not originally intend to go to graduate school. Um, I was always interested in film. And in, as an undergrad, I was I became interested in experimental film. Afterward, um, I drifted around as many postgraduates do. Um, I was interested in writing about film and doing criticism. And uh, I did some of that, but I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I felt like I didn't have really sufficient knowledge or training about film studies, film history to write authoritatively as a critic. Um, So that was one interest of mine going into graduate school was just to uh, really immerse myself in uh, histories of cinema. I'd also had a brief stint working in Hollywood. I worked in post-production at a visual effects studio, um, which was both fascinating and tedious. Um, And 
mostly stressful. So that didn't last very long. But I got to see how the sausage is made. And actually, a lot of my um, experience and what I learned um, uh, during that time working in post um, makes its way into chapter two of this book. Um, and I was, re- I mean, I was just really totally fascinated at how much uh, contemporary filmmaking was constructed at the level of the frame um, and was largely animated uh, in ways that, you know, don't look like cartoons, obviously, but uh, in ways that don't appear to a viewer as being manipulated at all um, or manipulated to that degree. So that was that was something I, I've always kind of kept with me from that otherwise um, <laughs> unpleasant uh, couple of years. Um, and then finally, I ended up at the, I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I ended up at the Getty Research Institute where a couple of my former professors were working um, as visiting scholars on the theme of duration. And um, they were both happy to hire me as a research assistant. And, you know, I was sitting on the top of this hill in Brentwood in their offices, and I thought I could get used to this. This is really nice. Um, Pulling books, thinking about time and cinema and um, taking long walks in the garden. And, And being a professor has not exactly panned out that way. I don't even have a window. Uh, but I do have an office. Um, but you know that 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 led me on a path to uh, where I am today. <laughs> that's a, that's the kind of roundabout way of saying it. Absolutely, well, it sounds like a pretty idyllic scene of a life of the mind, thinking about duration in a garden in Brentwood. Um, maybe an idyllic life of the mind in film studies. Um, but that does lead me to sort of. Um, my next question for you, which is specifically about this project, how did Girlhead take shape and did it undergo any big changes from its origins, its beginnings, uh, to when it became a, a book for all of us to read? Yeah, so I have like, um, there's like a short version of this, of an answer and a long version of the answer. Would you, wh- which would you prefer <laughs> that I give? Gosh, um, I think that I will leave it up to you. I I think, you know, I would prefer to leave no stone unturned, but I might change my mind and I'll give you the wrap up signal if so. <laughs> okay. I think um, I'll say a couple of things, basically. I've been thinking about this question a lot. Um, and I think anyone writing a book, any scholar writing a book might consider like, how did I end up in this topic? Um, and I think I entered graduate studies. Uh, I started graduate school in 2006 and it was a moment where there was a lot of hand wringing about the death of cinema. You know, every, we, we even organized, I went to USC, we even organized a graduate conference about, um, deaths of cinema, thinking about ruins and archives and things like that. Um, and I was pretty deeply invested at that point in experimental film and seeing at festivals and exhibition spaces um, a lot of uh, concern and curiosity around um, celluloid-only uh, projection and, and filmmaking or admittance of digital and what that meant. Um, and so those are kind of questions brewing in my mind um, as I as I entered graduate school, I, and I didn't pick a side. 
um, I, I was kind of interested in both. I was interested in intermedial dialogue between film and digital um, and, and seeing them as interlocutors um, in the process of making an artwork and, and saying something perhaps about the moment in which they're made. Um, I also was, um, you know, I had a, uh, I didn't take to feminist analysis immediately. I think um, it's something I arrived at and it's something I, I, I came to appreciate after being in graduate school for a while. Um, and I think it's because um, you know, thinking about, and I, I, this has also occurred since I've started teaching. So this has shaped the book in its like later stages. And I should backtrack and just say this is the outgrowth of a dissertation project. And that's going to go through any number of changes. Um, and mine was dramatically reshaped after after completing the dissertation. But I've grown a real appreciation, a deep appreciation for feminist analysis, feminist film theory and history and film studies. Um, and thinking about its place within film studies, it's really hard to overstate the importance of feminist film theory. Um, you know, a lot of film theory will demarcate the classical era of film theory from the contemporary. And it's really, um, it's very much a simplistic breakdown. It's convenient for structuring courses. Um, but, you know, if you say classical is, let's say, theories of examining what cinema was, um, like micro-expressions uh, micro of the face or editing, um, the language of editing, um, then content, what's called contemporary film theory is um, bringing film into discussion with other intellectual currents of the time. Uh, and this is coincident with, with film studies entry into the academy as well. So suddenly film theory can speak the language of feminism, semiotics, psychoanalysis, et cetera. Um, but the, the thing that was interesting to me, and again, this coincides with the moment at which I, I entered like scholarly film studies, was that feminist film theory and history was largely revisionary in its impetus. So it was the first theory, I think, to really take um, the entirety of film history into scope. And it had a, a, an incredibly ambitious reach. Um, and it was, you know, in, as stones, you know, not being left unturned, it was about examining, you know, all these nooks and crannies of film history that were kind of fusty at that point, right? Um, like early cinema, um, or even classical cinema to some extent, and asking questions about structures of power, right? How authority is conferred, um, how exclusions are justified or accomplished, how power is reproduced and sustained. And obviously feminism is concerned about the oppression of women, but um, that has to proceed from analysis and analysis of the conditions of that oppression. So seeing the kind of foundational place feminist film theory has in film studies, as well as the kind of projects um, enabled by feminist work as revisionary was, I think, deeply, you know, upon reflection, deeply important to um, what I was thinking about and what I wanted to contribute as, as my first book. And, and, you know, other kinds of inquiries follow from this, you know, um, uh, groundbreaking uh, intervention feminist film work has done in film studies. Um, 
queer theory, critical race theory, and, and the like. Um, so I, I guess, you know, there's, um, when I look back at it from the kind of long view, I see these intellectual trends and values in my work that I didn't necessarily see at the time. I mean, there's the, the short answer to your question is a much more intuitive happenstance, um, uh, circuitous route through a set of, you know, I can only describe as eccentric um, interests that I have always been interested in issues of materiality and form. Um, but I, I, I mean, I'll say my, my, my dissertation was really kind of wild. It was, um, it was about the mythological figure um, of Medusa. And the title of my dissertation was called Medusa and Optics. So it's all about Medusa. I was interested in, um, and I had a very, very supportive advisor um, um, and a team kind of directing my dissertation. So they really let me go into the places where my imagination would take me. But if, you know, taking the myth of Medusa as um, in some ways, uh, you know, central to psychoanalytic questions um, where uh, terror um, and uh, horror are, is located in the prohibitions around looking at a woman. So just, you know, to, to address um, the kind of centrality of women as, as, uh, as the unseeable. Um, and just as a side note, right, Freud did write about um, the Medusa's head. He's a very short text from 1922 called Medusa's Head, um, in which he describes, it's, it's really about um, castration anxiety. He calls it the terror of castration linked to the sight of something. Um, but so it seemed to me that this kind of play between gender and vision had a lot to do with cinema and looking and the, again, feminist film theory, um, especially from the seventies onward. Um, and that just went all kinds of places. I, you know, there's whole chapters that just never made into the book. Um, I had a, a chapter about Asian horror, J-horror um, and, and Ringu um, thinking about things like hair and femininity and technological reproduction. Um, I was looking at, there's a hair fight. There's a, where in a manga series called Uzumaki, where like two girls, their hair is like kind of alive and they're like attacking each other. Um, I went down a rabbit hole looking at, um, this like English pub culture of what's called the headless woman. So I was interested in decapitations um, of, of women to, to silence them in, in um, six use terms. But there's like, you can go on like Wikipedia and find these. There's all these like pubs where a woman, there's a headless bar maiden and she's serving like drinks along with her head on a platter. Um, uh, I had lists of movies where people and objects like pop out of screens. I mean, I don't even know if this makes sense <laughs> to you at this point. It made sense to me at the time and all of it works its way in one way or another uh, in the dissertation. But the, the book is very much a kind of um, cleaned up, um, I would even say streamlined and um, a version of, of what, you know, the energies that, that began the dissertation. Um, 
but it's still, I, I would still say that the book is a very, um, a kind of container for objects that have fascinated me and continue to fascinate and disturb me. Um, and so it reflects my interest that way. Um, I'm not a very systematic thinker, uh, even though this is a work largely of theory and theory, I think generally asks that you be systematic. Um, but it is, you know, this combination of intuition, uh, attraction, you could say, of like things that are seem to be speaking to each other and to me and um, organized in a kind of discursive way. Thank you. I'm really glad we didn't get the Cliff Notes answer because I think that you tapped into some really uh, fascinating areas that we're going to continue to talk about as we sort of go through your book uh, wildly and systematically. We can do it both ways. We can do a little of each in our conversation. Um, But I like how you describe your book as a container for all of these objects that fascinated you. And I've never met you, but when I was reading your book, I was imagining you finding these different objects because they're so so sort of disparate in terms of form and genre and media platform. Um, and I, so I know it gets overused, but I think your book is like critically interdisciplinary in terms of um, it, you know, um, it has people like Freud make sizable cameos uh, in Derrida, but there's also Hitchcock, there's an Edison short and there's experimental media and you end on this beautiful um, Adrian Rich poem. Um, so you really combine like the archival and the historical impulse with these kind of, with like a theoretical sort of framework. Um, so I want to talk to you about like what the rewards and the challenges are of doing that kind of interdisciplinary work. And that can be a question about the writing or the research, or it can be about sort of finding your audience or promoting the book, whatever you feel like is the most sort of um, generative angle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I already lost track of your question a little bit, but I, if I understand, I like the rewards and challenges. The rewards and challenges of doing a book that is so sort of joyfully interdisciplinary. <laughs> Thank you for putting that way. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, literally, I had like a folder on my computer desktop where I would just dump things that I found that were interesting. They just kind of all lived in the same area. Um, And I didn't always know what to do with everything. Uh, And I, of course, didn't use everything. So there's a kind of like side, many side projects that could emerge. Um, And it's true. There's a lot of different kinds of artifacts that make its way into this book that's ostensibly um, and stubbornly about film, but manages to work in like sculpture, poetry, as you said, um, uh, painting, um, and all these different kinds of art forms, mainstream uh, gallery work, um, you know, just kind of running the gamut and, and time frames. So, you know, in graduate school, you're, you're often told, one is often told to put a kind of date frame around uh, a project. Um, and at the time I was working I had a lot of anxiety about, well, mine is like 1895 to like, at that point it was like 2008 or 2010. And that just seemed absurd. Um, but again, my, my advising team, my advisor um, uh, was really, really supportive. So, and he, he encouraged me to move 
um, Akira Lippet is, is who it was. Um, uh, and he writes this way as well. So I picked in, in many ways the right advisor for this project. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I, I approach things first as a critic, I try to approach objects. So it was obviously, it's not like I had a, a theory in mind, like, okay, that, uh, gender is going to be expressed on the material level of filmmaking processes that every, you know, especially in spaces that we don't consider representational. Um, that's like the overall kind of uh, thrust of the book, but it's not like, I, you know, I did not start out with that and then find objects to fit that. It was more arriving at that argument through the objects I had collected. So to the extent I had an argument, let's say it was fairly unconscious um, until a certain point when it was kind of drawn out of the, through the, the kind of conversations the objects were having with each other. Um, and I, I guess, you know, as a critic, uh, what has been useful for me is that it allows me to approach an object or a text and just in a, you know, as fresh a way as possible to really, um, you know, not approach these things as things to hang a theory on, but are themselves, um, uh, well, can often be themselves like theoretical articulations or propositions or spaces in which, you know, ideas are challenged and raised. So treating objects with the same deference as we approach scholarly texts as um, like the artworks can be doing theory just as well as a work by you know, Freud um, or Derrida or, uh, you know, um, is very much kind of my attitude around uh, objects, which is how I end up with a, I think quite an eclectic range, um, not for eclecticism's sake, but for, um, hearing out these different voices and, and their contributions and putting, trying to put them on the same level as, as the theory. Um, it was really a challenge to find a frame to fit around this project. Um, as I said, there are a lot of darlings that were killed and, um, and it is, it is unusual. And I think it can be baffling for reviewers, um, especially to have a work that is, in some parts, very speculative, and in other parts, very empirical. Um, in film studies, I think people often just do one or the other. You have your theory people, you have your history people, and they they kind of don't, they operate in separate domains. And um, I wasn't necessarily trying to unify those two areas, but I, again, was following the lead of my objects. I, I, I for example, I found I came across the China girl um, and I realized I had a lot of questions about this image that I was seeing and it required me for me to find out. And I mean, I would have loved for there to have been a book that explained it to me, but it didn't exist. So then I had to go um, and find out for myself by talking to people, talking to lab technicians, talking to projectionists, talking to um, like retirees from Kodak, you know, what was this thing uh, that just didn't have a written history that was very much part of a vernacular culture. Um, so to the extent that there is archival research, again, it's following the lead of that the, uh, the path that I felt 
um, was laid out for me by the objects I'd selected. Great. I, I mean, what I got from sort of reading was that, I mean, I didn't know that you sort of started from the objects, but that makes me think um, sort of even more about the way that you frame your argument as being focused on the processes that are hidden from view. So like you have been creating your own kind of counter archive of feminist screen expression. Um, and then the argument sort of stems from these case studies. But just to reiterate your, what you call your conceptual intervention a moment before we move into those sites of meaning, you talk about moving inquiry away from representation and toward industrial and institutional processes, which though hidden from view are no less gendered. So rather than looking at story, um, like whether it's a feminist story or not, whether there's sort of the male gaze in the, in the very like sort of 1970s Laura Mulvey consideration of that or Tanya Modleski, or whether we're talking about industry politics, who controls the representation, you're interested in the sort of hidden from, hidden from view material processes of making the film object itself, as you say, structure, Structural elements have this kind of impact on meaning. Um, so you have three case studies, and I don't want to get too far away from your mention of, of the China Girl, because I think a lot of listeners won't necessarily know what that is yet, but it's really uh, such um, an exciting and evocative discovery you've made. So I think you just have to start by telling us what is the reference image of the China Girl, and what does she uh, tell us about the gendered materiality particularly of celluloid film, of the film strip. Although, as you mentioned, there are, there are these kind of echoes into the digital moment. It's not like the China Girl is forever, has forever been lost or is gone forever now that we've moved into more digital projection modes. Yeah, we have digital, digital China Girls now. Um, yeah, so China Girls are, um, they're quality control instruments or tools um, and there'll be uh, uh, an image um, of and they kind of have a you know a generic form where there's a, a woman in close-up um, uh, surrounded by color bars and like a patch of white gray and black and usually uh, in a in a Western country, this is going to be a white woman. Um, I can explain more about the name in just a moment. So she's not Chinese, um, but it is an image used in in all manners of laboratory processes. But it's used to basically gauge um, consistency in in achieving desired levels for density and tone, um, and it's a the fa it's an image of a, a person in that skin tones are often, you know, kind of where the eye, a viewer's eye might most readily detect errors in um, inconsistency around color and tone and density. Um, so that's been one of the explanations of why it is a, a human figure, although there are plenty of examples of China girls that are like dolls or um mannequins or or even like some there's like a stuffed dog one um uh so what i had probably seen i, I described this in the book i probably seen a china girl a number of times because i've been going to films projected on 
film screenings where the film was being projected on film. And, it, and I had been a projectionist myself in college um, uh, doing 16 millimeter projection um, for classes. Um, but, you know, the way that a, an audience member in a theater might see a China girl is, so you'll have multiple reels for a feature length film. And at the, uh, usually at the a China girl strip of footage, so somewhere between four and six frames or three and six frames, that will be kind of spliced into the head or tail leader of a, of a film. So if you have a projectionist that is, um, misses the cue, um, and I'll just say it's really easy to miss those cues. I miss them all the time as a projectionist, but misses the changeover cue um, to switch from run one reel to the next on your two projector setup. Um, there is a possibility that if one of the first reel runs out, that you'll see all that leader and you'll catch a glimpse of that China girl um, before the, you know, the next reel comes on. Um, it being only like three to six frames means it's, it's there in a flash. It's going to go by really quickly uh, since film, of course, is 24 frames per second. Um, so it's really possible I'd seen this figure many, many times before. I've been in enough screenings where reels ran out. Um, and that was a common occurrence. Um, but it really wasn't until, um, I mean, there are a couple of origins here. One was watching Morgan Fisher's film Standard Gage um, at a screening. I think I was at LA MOCA, um, probably around like 2007 or so. And it's, a, it's become one of my favorite films. I love it. I teach it all the time. I think it's so funny. I think he's he's wonderful. But it's kind of a show and tell of film scraps that, that Fisher found um, working as an editor and other kind of odd jobs in the film industry uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and there's a section of the film where he pauses to consider a number of China Girl images. So he names it. He, he has some questions about it um, and kind of leaves it at that. And so the, I guess the seeds sort of have been planted at that point. But in 2008, you know, as I'm kind of, uh, was it 2008? It might have been 2010. But I was, you know, progressing through my graduate studies. I was at the Getty a bunch. Um, there was a workshop at the Getty that Tom Gunning had organized and invited me to. And it was about the moving image. And one of the people, and everyone was asked to bring in a, a different kind of object that kind of, um, you put pressure on the idea of like, what is, what is a, the moving image? Um, and one of the people there was Mark Toscano, who's an archivist at the Academy Film Archive. And Mark brought in a reel that someone had deposited of China Girl footage. Um, it says unbroken, and this is very unusual um, because China Girls, again, are usually clipped just a few frames at a time and used in these like small increments um you know I, at that time well I, I knew nothing about china girls really at that time but i hadn't even realized it was motion picture photography and not still photography um and he had a whole reel of this so about two and a half minutes worth and we just watched it this woman sitting there um uh in this very colorful shirt orientalist shirt um it was a kodak china girl from the 70s and it just it it astounded me. It was just like, what is this artifact? Like, what is, who is this woman? What is she doing? What is this for? 
Um, and it was enigmatic. You know, I think I was drawn into it for the reason many people are drawn into China Girls. It was this kind of aesthetically compelling image. Um, and seeing it in a way that it was not intended to be seen uh, as this like kind of undisturbed reel really brought to my attention, um, you know, like what, uh, what hinges, you know, what, what processes are enabled or even depend on this, this peculiar and like such a fragile kind of image too. this, this woman, the silent footage of this like woman who's seems to be coached to smile periodically. I mean, it's hard to sit there for two and a half minutes and like look pretty <laughs> um, and just smile. So she, her smile fades and then I think she's being coached and comes back. Um, and this later became Mark, who's also a filmmaker later used it for a film that he made called releasing human energies in which Morgan Fisher again shows up and talks about the China girl, but here Morgan's reading um, uh, a text from a, a guide, like a kind of instruction manual for managers of hotels and like other hospitality things. Um, so you can see that footage there and it's, it's equally as striking there, but I, I, you know, I was hooked basically at that point and I was very interested in finding out more of everything I could about this um, strange uh, appearance of a, of a person or some kind of a person um, in these, you know, dark recesses of, of the film strip. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. She's a kind of a character that haunts the movie, but isn't in the movie. Um, and it's, it's strange to hear about sort of an uninterrupted footage of her because so much of what you talk about in the book is that sort of uh, the basis of sort of feminism and film materiality is often one of like being cut off or being sort of violently disrupted. And sort of the China girl is that in two ways. She's both a close up and also she's like, cut in very quickly into the movie, but to see her stretched out is both, I imagine, like a liberation and a kind of like an unca strange, uncanny moment of watching something that you usually see in a flicker. But um, I want to hear a little more about like sort of particularly the name of the China girl, which is a racialized label, but doesn't necessarily mean um, that the model was from China or Asian of any kind, as you mentioned, the image encodes race without necessarily representing it. So China girl is an index of skin color among many other things. That's why you would use a human model, but is not necessarily um, representative of any particular race. I want to just like talk about that a little bit more. 
Yeah, I never got to the bottom of this um, question of where did this name come from. Yeah. Um, there were a few. I kept I, everyone I talked to about this, and I talked to a lot of um, very kind older men, mostly mostly men. Um, and there were various theories floating around. And this is a question um, that had bounced around also on like a lab technician's lift serve uh, as well. Um, so the idea is China as a material, um, uh, i.e. porcelain, i.e. something, you know, white and like Chinese porcelain is kind of has this kind of luminous whiteness. Um, and, you know, my, uh, dating of this figure of this particular kind of reference image, um, I trace it to the mid to late 1920s. Um, the way I did this was by looking at technical journals and literature of the time. So, um, you know, work by researchers, um, doing like photochemistry in, um, still on motion picture photography um, at Kodak Research Laboratories, which is where it was kind of like the, the hub of this research. Um, and, you know, knowing that the China girl is something that emerges as a tool in, in determining, um, you know, consistency for, as a quality control tool, um, I traced it to the kind of uh, looking for um, kind of standard reference images or tests. Um, so this is my sense of when it emerges because the literature points to, uh, I'm giving you an overly technical <laughs> reason for why I'm, I'm locating it in this time period. Um, but it's a time when the an instrument called the densitometer is invented um, and it's still used today. Um, and the need for uh, an, some kind of image, reference image to for the densitometer to gauge consistency is, is how I kind of locate the China girl in that moment. That's all to say, the reason I bring that up is because in that time period, I think there was a kind of vernacular culture around like the China girl as a popular culture song. Um, there was, um, I think a Broadway show uh, earlier in the 20th century, um, various things called China Girl. So it's just kind of more a part of the culture at the time. And, and again, it refers more to dolls, um, China dolls, um, than it does to uh, actual Asian women. Though I don't think you have to look too far for like fetishization of, of Asian women's bodies and like the history in the United States, for example, um, uh, around, um, you know, uh, racialized sexuality um, of, of Asian women, but, you know, um, more generally speaking. So that's, that's one, one uh, thread that I follow a little bit. Um, uh, I did talk to one lab technician who um, had been a naval um, cinematographer on like spy planes. So he, and he told me, Again, I could not verify this, but he told me that in like around 1945, he had seen a China, an, an Asian woman as a China girl that was part of his naval training would have been, you know, sometime in the late 30s. Uh, but I have not been able to verify his uh, his claim. So that's sort of there's a lot of uh, apocrypha 
um, in lab culture. Not a lot of stuff makes it into any official record. Um, a lot of the stuff is just passed down. Um, but we do see kind of clues in other um, other national and like language contexts. So, um, and the kind of name for the China girl, the variations in other languages um, have to do either with Chinese-ness, so like la chinoise in French, or like doll-ness, like um, a muñeca in, in Spanish. Um, and there's also like slang that has to do like female anatomy. So it's uh, it's a kind of like bundle of signifiers is as best as I can kind of address it. I, I, I can't explain it exactly, um, but I can certainly theorize and think about how Chinese-ness or Oriental ideas of femininity get tied up with an idea of like model femininity and model even whiteness peculiarly, right? It comes back around to, to being about race. So it, it borrows a notion of race um, in order to produce a function of race. Definitely. I, I definitely see that. And I think the braiding together of sort of the glorification of whiteness and also sort of this leaning into Orientalism together to create this reference image that in the end has to be cut out. It can't actually be in the movie, I'll, even if the movie is resting on all of these assumptions and all of these um, premises or something maybe. Um, and so I think that carries into sort of the the next site of image, the next sort of this meaning, the next sort of set of images to talk about. If the China girl is really fa- like very much interested in sort of the face or the head or the kind of the Medusan optics um, of removing the head. Uh, Escamontage sort of, I think you can correct me, it's like requires the whole body. There's a kind of disappearance of the, of the entire female form. Uh, so again, we're to, like Escamontage is something that probably needs a little bit of def- definition for us. Um, it's a cinematic practice that blurs the line between editing and visual effects, which now I know is part of your, the latter is part of your background, part of your own story. Um, can you say more about what it is and how it functions as this kind of gendered structural element? Yeah, so it's, it's something I made up. It's a portmanteau um, of a uh, two French words, um, escamontage, which is sleight of hand, um, for like magic, uh, performance and montage, which is, uh, of course, editing and film. So I was interested in a kind of subtle, uh, tricks of editing that are part and parcel of, um, the language of editing. And, um, you know, in, in film studies, there's a discourse around invisible style, the invisible style of classical continuity editing that, you know, that's a form of editing that, you know, typically in a film, and it's dominant today, but, you know, typical in film, we don't notice when cuts occur. We're so, you know, wrapped up in the story as the flow of events, um, that editing is itself invisible. And if you, if it is visible, that's usually because there's an error on the part of the editor, an inexperienced editor, or, um, a deliberate reason that the editor has chosen to do that, like the shower scene in Psycho, for example. Um, um, but I was interested in how, um, again, this question of like what distinguishes editing from visual effects, which is a, a newish 
problem, or not problem, but area of investigation brought about by digital technologies and tools um, that I think um, actually has a much deeper history than just the contemporary moment. Um, So this is another instance where the contemporary moment I felt allowed me to ask different questions about film history, um, uh, going back to some of its earliest points. Um, So I actually, you know, it was like, where, where in film history has there been this convergence of what we would call an effect, a visual effect, a manipulation of um, what we're seeing that also kind of blends into what editing has been. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, uh, and Tom Gunning, um, uh, who I admire very much, uh, had written a piece about um, uh, early cinema and the continuity of the frame and how a lot of tricks, trick films in, in early film were accomplished by right stop motion substitution where there would be no apparent break in the coherence of the framing um, as presented. So, you know, Malleus would be there. He would like wave his arms or a curtain, a cloth of some sort and um, uh, in front of a woman and then remove it. She'd be, she'd have turned into a skeleton, you know, right. This is just kind of like prestidigitation accomplished cinematically without breaking the frame. And um, and I was interested in whether this kind of tradition could be, you could trace it not as a legacy of tricks and like stunts, but as something that's, again, is there something more subtle that is just part of the language of film that we've, we haven't noticed. Um, and that came together for me when I, when I looked carefully at the film, um, The Execution of Mary Queen of Scots from 1895, which is a Thomas Edison production. Um, And again, what I found totally fascinating about this example is that like a woman and a violence against a woman's body is just right there too. So again, bundles of signifiers, um, possibly historical just coincidences, but they, to my mind, are are meaningful. Um, so in that film, uh, which is it's 10 second film, so kinetoscope uh, reel. Um, so never really was, at least in its time projected, um, but was viewed in a kinetoscope um, single viewer device. It's, um, it's a very brief film that just kind of stages the exactly what the title describes, the execution of Mary Queen of Scots, her beheading by uh, an executioner with a bunch of like court attendants in the background. Um, And it's, uh, it's kind of obscured the kind of the act of the cut is obscured several times over. And I was, I was interested in like the pun on like the cutting of the head and the cutting of the film. Um, But first off that the, the person playing Mary is in fact a man, um, Robert Tomei. He's dressed in, in Mary clothes. Um, can't quite tell that. Um, so she's disappeared in, you know, in one sense that way. Uh, and then uh, secondly, at a crucial moment in the film, so just before the blade, um, it's like kind of while the, bla- the the axe is lifted and before it falls, that's when the cut occurs. 
Um, and what happens there is that the, the uh, actor's body is replaced by a dummy with a detachable head. Um, so you have the substitution of, of dummy for body. And then the third time over um, would be that, you know, this claim I'm making that a film like this has fallen through the cracks of film historiography. Um, again, where there's two distinct histories that we traditionally draw between um, trick cinematography and like the grammar of continuity editing. And I'm saying that this, this film kind of occupies uh, a, a middle ground between those two. Um, so uh, yeah, and so I just kind of trace this logic uh, um, through, you know, I, and like Hitchcock is so, so uh, useful, but like also like I, I really admire his uh, um, invention uh, with, with something like rope, um, you know, his willingness to do something to make a film that appears like a single shot and um, uh, to follow, you know, to, to be a kind of key instance of what I'm calling escamontage um, all the way through contemporary digital uh, visual effects, VFX, um, and someone like David Fincher. Yeah, I, I love your uh, line of sort of about what bodies lie beneath cinema's trapdoors because it allows you this sort of trapdoor stagey image allows you to connect all the way from like Edison to Hitchcock to Fincher. I mean, the Hitchcock to Fincher sort of genealogy might be, um, you know, generic, like a, a genre based argument, but to take it through Edison, I feel like is this trapdoor metaphor is very apt. Um, and I was um, thinking about how Escamontage has this kind of stage lineage, China girl, sort of the China girl conversation is sort of, I think, dips into sort of art historical questions uh, a great deal. And your final chapter about the film archive becomes sort of about um, the literary and the psychoanalytic. So again, this kind of interdisciplinary, it feels like you're sort of moving your way through the humanities in a really cool <laughs> way. So uh, I want to sort of spend a little time with your final case study, which is the film archive, where you bring in, uh, in addition to Derrida and Freud, you know, archival big hitters. We have uh, work from Bill Morrison and Cheryl Dunier to, uh, that you sort of put together to undermine what you call sort of an overly optimistic narrative about the feminist archive, that feminist traces can be recovered from the archive. The past is only misplaced. It's not lost. Um, and you use your convert, you see, sort of use your argument about um, feminism and film materiality to sort of bring us the bad news in a cool way. Um, <laughs> but this chapter is, it's an extension of those arguments, but it is different because you're sort of moving off the film strip and you're moving into an institution, like a building, um, mm -hmm. a place that is also, that is also only in our imaginations, but it is a place. Uh, so can you talk about sort of that transition from looking at the film to looking at the film institution in the film archive chapter? Yeah, I guess um, um, I was acutely aware when I started working on this chapter that I wasn't necessarily um, 
going to talk, I mean, I did spend some time looking about looking at archival practices and, and like um, image conservation and um, like preservation standards and that kind of thing. Um, but what really drew my attention, and there's, there's so much fascinating stuff there. Um, there's this, I'll just make a plug for this wonderful place called the Image Permanence Institute at, um, and they're, they're located at, the, at RITA, Rochester Institute for Technology. Um, they're doing really wonderful work and I, I just learned so much from them. I, I think they're, they're wonderful. Um, I learned so much about film stocks and, and the like, but uh, you know, when you work on archives and it does, it is such a humanities kind of uh, concern, the archive. Um, I first, you know, I think Derrida's inescapable when you talk about the archive, like every, you know, at the very least I was going to have to footnote him. Um, or like account for archive fever in one way or another. But when I started really reading it, I'd read it before. I was kind of baffled by it. Um, when I really started reading it, I, I noticed that it was like bookended by these references to a figure called Gradiva. And I did not know what that was. Um, and he was oddly uh, kind of sentimental about it. He's like, I, I forget the exact line, but the beginning is something like, you know, and now as I begin again, I think of her and it's just like, you know, um, uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, and then I started looking into what Gradiva was and, um, it's a 1903 novella by, um, uh, Wilhelm Jensen. Um, it was a subject of great fascination for Freud. Freud wrote, you know, it's just, I went down this like Gradiva, Gradiva rabbit hole, um, and started to ask myself, like, what is, what is this figure doing here? First of all, in these like theories and accounts, uh, in, in Derrida's theory, um, and how might I connect that back to um, the the questions of materiality that I've been um, posing earlier in this book, and I guess I wanted to move into a more discursive register, um, I mean, to critique Derrida uh, on his invocation of what he means by materiality and what maybe he excludes when he means, when he talks about materiality and um, uh, and to, th to use a few films that, to my mind, or, or works, I should say, because one of them is a, an installation, um, that um offer a different view of that you know the kind of functioning of the archive so if Derrida is like kind of in some ways producing an operative account of an archive a kind of imaginary archive um in the tradition of like a Borges um then I wanted to probe more specifically the role uh assigned to this figure of Gradiva the kind of chimerical woman um, that begins and ends his study and uh, that preoccupied Freud and um, that I think also works its way, you know, not directly, but is also present in a certain sense um, in the Morrison, Donier and um, Radame pieces that I'm looking at. Well, I think, um, can you sort of give us maybe a little bit more of a reading using one of the one of the films or works that you 
examine to sort of look at how we can imagine the film archive and sort of like picture the loss uh, through one of their, one of their sort of, I won't say narratives through one of their like aesthetic theoretical setups. Yeah, definitely. And I'm realizing too, I did not even present my, my argument in my last answer, nor just this really important question of um, the, the recuperative archive or the, you know, the kind of my hesitation, I'll put it that way, um, around um, alternative counter archives as, as restoring the, filling the gaps of the um, inadequate official archives. So I, I'll, I'll address that too. Um, so um, Der- uh, so uh, Derrida's um, account of the archive uh, rests on this figure of Gradiva, who is uh, in Jensen's no- novella, is a woman that this archaeologist um, imagines he sees. He has like a dream about her. He's in, he's uh, he's in Rome. This is a real um, a, a real image that exists in, in real life. But he has like this fantasy about this uh, figure. He names her um, Gradiva, uh, which means um, um, elegant and walking. Um, imagines that she like lived in Pompeii and it was a, um, a victim of the uh, Mount Vesuvius eruption. And he just starts to have this kind of like fantasy of her. And when he gets back to his his home in, in northern Germany uh, buys like a, a replica of the bas-relief and hangs it in his office. Um, and he continues to have these fantasies of Gradiva such that he ends, ends up kind of despite himself, but ends up in Pompeii, like makes his way back there and goes to this spot. And then to his surprise, he, he meets this woman there um, he thinks she's Gradiva and she talks to him every day at noon. He goes there every day and she's there every day. He's like, is this a woman? Is it a ghost? What's really going on? And um, I guess, spoiler alert. So uh, it turns out that this woman is actually a, is a real woman. Her name is Zoe uh, Burking. And um, she is, in fact, this archaeologist, uh, his childhood playmate that he was had been in love with um, but ha- whose memory he had completely repressed so all of these echoes of Gradiva were in fact displaced um, uh, memories or fantasies of this childhood love of his and very patiently I, I think Zoe kind of coaxes him out she like enters his fantasy as Gradiva she like plays along with him until he kind of realizes that he puts the pieces together that, you know, actually this is someone I used to know and I, and I, um, I used to love and he pro- proposes marriage to her. And then, you know, he's kind of, uh, that ends the story. And Freud was really taken with this story. Um, and he saw it as a, a kind of model for, um, the therapeutic process, right. That the analyst kind of enters the fantasy, uh, of the patient with that person and kind of can kind of step out of it and can help put the pieces together and achieve some kind of unity at the end. And what I found really um, interesting about Derrida's account um, 
Oh, let me backtrack a bit. So Derrida uses Gradiva as a, a way of thinking about the construction of the archive. So, um, you know, as this archaeologist in Jensen's story is kind of roaming around Europe, um, kind of gathering traces of Gradiva, like a bracelet here or, um, you know, some other kind of material remnant there, like a, a, a marble um, bas relief there. Um, for Derrida, this is the accumulation that constitutes the archive. It's a kind of byproduct of this erotic quest to find this missing woman. Um, and, um, but for Derrida, he kind of ends the story. He doesn't make any mention after the moment where, uh, after the big reveal of this, of Zoe. Uh, and Zoe, of course, means life. So in a sense, Derrida's um, account of the archive like does not admit a living woman. It allows for her traces and it allows for material in that sense, I'm putting it in quotes, um, but does not actually allow for the rest of the story, uh, which is significant to Freud um, and uh, obviously is important in, in the original story as well. So I found this interesting, like, well, why is an archive, uh, if it is organized according, in, on some level, according to, you know, if we take Derrida seriously, and I think many, many do, and many archivists do as well, um, what does it mean that an archive is like a kind of byproduct of an erotic quest for a woman? And furthermore, kind of has to exclude that figure from ever entering the archive in a sense that, that the woman, her, Zoe, for example, cannot actually participate or be part of that archive. Um, again, was this relationship between the kind of um, remnants or material, material reflections of woman without the kind of actual body um, in a sense. Um, and again, film I think is so interesting as a space where, you have things that approximate and resemble the body, such as the film strip, um, without being right the actual person. So I guess the kind of um, uh, the kind of the first film I thought of in this in these terms, and I'm not also not the first person to think of this, um, but is this wonderful film by Bill Morrison from 1997 called The Film of Her, which kind of um, semi-fictional account of the discovery of the paper print collection. So it's a film about um, a film archive. Um, and the paper print collection, for, for anyone who doesn't know, is a, a trove of, um, I think it's like 6,000 films. I don't have the number right offhand, but um, of the first, um, I think 1895 to about uh, 19... I did not come prepared with dates. I think it's either 1907 or 1911. I forget which. Um, but in, in a period when the Library of Congress, in order to issue copyright for films, which is something like Edison was obsessed with, um, films had to be um, submitted in facsimile uh, to, the, to the Library of Congress. So what resulted are, are paper facsimiles, paper reels of films. Um, so that's why it's called the paper print collection. And so it's this enormous trove of early films that um, was just residing uh, somewhere in the, um, in the archives of the Library of Congress 
until uh, the late 40s. Um, and um, when, as the story goes, they were discovered shortly before they were to be incinerated um, to make room for other stuff. And then, you know, one of the kind of uh, copyright clerks noticed this and prevented it from happening and um, saved the collection. So there's a kind of heroic um, rescue in the actual story of what happens to the paper print collection. Um, and uh, in Morrison's uh, retelling, and he interviewed Howard Walls, who was the archivist who claimed, one of the archivists who claimed to, to have discovered um, the paper print collection. Um, he invents a motive for this archivist. And his, the motive he invents is that um, the archivist was, or Walls, I should say, the fictionalized Walls, is seeking uh, her, you know, this unnamed woman, um, which he had spied in a kind of uh, like a film, like an erotic film that had played in his grandfather's cinema when he was a boy. So uh, Morrison invents this story about like a boy enchanted with an image of a woman in a stag film and that he's actually, the whole reason he's even down there um, in the vaults is to look for her, look for an image of this woman. And in Morrison's film, uh, the archivist finds her and you see a bit of this footage um, and he rephotographs her, the, the footage, and like, um, is there's a kind of joyful, I guess, discovery of her. Um, but what I, I, I find really interesting is that, um, of course, she's only ever an image um, and a kind of one dimensional, I mean, quite literally one dimensional, if you think about paper. Um, not even a luminescent film image um, as she's originally discovered, but, uh, you know, as, as Morrison imagines, it's a kind of flat paper image. Um, so again, I think there's a kind of Gradivan logic that you can see um, working through this um, film that um, structurally cannot allow for anything else, right? It reaches its like asymptote of uh, a rephotographed um, strip of footage that a, a, a someone could watch and rewatch. Um, but insofar as it, it transforms into um, an actual person, uh, a historical person, that's the kind of ultimate limit of that kind of narrative. Thank you. That's, that's, Really interesting. Unfortunately, this I only have time for one more question, so I want to sort oh, sure. of uh, zoom out to you again, or zoom back to you like we started with. Um, so in addition to this book, you are, um, in addition to being a professor, you are a sort of a freelance public-facing writer. You're a filmmaker. You uh, program independent film program, like sort of screenings. So in our final moments, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to promote any other work that you are doing right now, or that might be coming down, uh, coming down the pike. Yes. Um, happy to talk about these. I have 
I guess we know there's two main projects that I'm imagining. Um, one is a book um, about um, the film Nanook at the North and its many legacies, um, including its legacy for, of course, documentary film. It's, the, it's considered the first documentary film, um, as well as the story of what happened to its archives. So I'm a, um, I serve on the board of trustees of the Flaherty Film Seminar, and I've been working with uh, the organization to um, I locate identify, catalog, and where appropriate, repatriate materials um, that Robert Flaherty uh, photographed or, um, you know, related to the production of Nanook of the North. So he made multiple journeys between 1910 and 1921 um, to not only Inuk but all around the Hudson Bay. Um, there's even an island named for him called Flaherty Island, um, and took... Uh, an estimated 1,500 photographs in addition to shooting this film. So I'm kind of in the midst of an archival quest right now myself um, to to find all the scattered pieces of this archive and try to um, pull that all together. And I'm working with partners at uh, um, Claremont College, which is where uh, the Flaherty received, uh, where Francis Flaherty left the, the, the Flaherty family holdings and have recently passed over to the Flaherty Seminar Organization, uh, Library Archives Canada, and Avatak, which is an Inuit cultural um, organization in Inukjuak. Um, one thing I'm throwing out there, and if any of your listeners have any idea about this, I'd be it really help. I would really appreciate the help, is that the uh, fur company that originally commissioned the film, Revillon Frère, um, has its own archive of materials, but no one seems to know where all that stuff is. Uh, we all think it's somewhere in like a suburb of Paris, uh, like a room full of boxes. So if anyone has any leads, Revillon Frère is not a company that exists any longer, um, but if people who are like, of crossover into the furrier fashion world, that would be really um, helpful. And um, can I just plug one little book series that I'm working on? Of course. Um, so I have a couple of collaborators, uh, Erica Balsam and Martine Bugnay, and we're working on a series called Cutaways. And it's a series of like little books, short form essay driven books um, about a single um, themes, devices, or motifs. The idea is that it would be uh, written by cinephiles, for cinephiles, so not just scholars and critics, but also filmmakers, programmers, uh, any kind of savant, right? Like, um, and I'm working, uh, and we're still kind of looking for a publisher, but we have a lot of great writers and topics lined up. So I'm gonna work on one about trains um, and if I get a chance to do another one, I think I might do housekeepers. Um, we also have crowds, eating, shoes, projection booths, um, and horses in the works. But I, I would love to see uh, some pitches on cakes, <laughs> um, bookstores, uh, and like brassiers. I think that would be all really great. So I'm very much looking forward to this project. Um, um, and if anyone has like great train movies they want to recommend to me, I'm, I'm just all about train movies right now. 
Well, I have some thoughts on trains, but you can, it's like a radio show. You can take those off the air. Um, Genevieve, thank you so much uh, for sitting down and telling us all about uh, your fascinating body of work. Um, Body of work seems particularly like almost like a pun, like I'm creeping up on a pun right now, but I'm going to let it lie. Um, (laughs) Thank you again. This has been great. Uh, You've been listening to the New Books Network. Uh, Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for having me. Bye.